It was the Saturday before Labor Day last year, and Joseph Rosamond got a notification on his phone. He was at his home in Manteca, a mid-sized city 150 miles away from Mammoth Pool Reservoir, and he was planning the long weekend with his family. It was right around 4 o'clock, 4.30 maybe, and that's when I first got a text message from uh, our facility commander and uh, saying, hey, there's a, there's a rescue, who's available? He's a chief warrant officer with the California Army National Guard, a helicopter pilot. Chief Joe, some call him. The details of the mission were slim, but he was interested. He'd been flying over wildfires for more than two decades. He just had to check in with someone very important, his five-year-old son. We were going to play some Zelda together. And I was like, hey, man, there's, there's all these people that are trapped. You know, there's fire coming at them and, and dad needs to go uh, help them out. You think you can, you can let me go? And, and he was cool about it, you know, and it's like, yeah, dad, go ahead. I'll, you know, I'll see you later. His wife and daughter gave him a thumbs up, too. So he started packing a bag, getting ready for a mission that would prove to be the riskiest thing he'd ever done. There are many ways to be heroic. Some are death-defying, some are not. And even talking someone down from a panic attack or offering a ride in the middle of a wildfire can pay dividends in serendipitous, even life-saving ways. And so, even though by many measures what happened at Mammoth Pool Reservoir last year was a tragedy, the situation also revealed some of the best of human nature. This is Escape from Mammoth Pool by KVPR. NPR for Central California. I'm Carrie Klein, and in today's episode, the heroes, big and small, who enabled everyone to get out alive. While Chief Joe was preparing his helicopter and briefing his crew, Carla Carcamo was trapped at the lake, replaying the last conversation she'd had with her sister. It was late afternoon, but dark as night, as the fire made its final push around the lake. Within minutes, we were surrounded. We were like basically in a ring of fire. And that meant her siblings and cousins were in danger. They had left for a hike that morning and hadn't been heard from since. Carla's teenage sister had wanted to hang back with her at the campground, but Carla encouraged her to leave. She'd said, go on, go have fun with our brother. And I just kept thinking like, if I wouldn't have said that, she would have been with me. She wouldn't have been with the boys. She wouldn't be lost. You know, like a lot of shouldn'ts and a lot of could'ves and a lot of would'ves were going through my mind, you know? She waited, unwittingly imagining all the horrible things that could have happened. But then... Everybody started screaming. Two trucks had emerged from the forest, and Carla's prayers were answered. They were carrying her cousin, her brother, and her sister. I ran so fast. I ran so fast, and as soon as I got there, I hugged my sister, and I just kept telling her, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, baby. And all she said was, I wanted to stay with you, and I said, I know. Then Carla looked down. She had like blisters on on her arms and her hand, and she had blisters on her legs. And she was just shaking. She was shaking. They had literally run for their lives, 
and busted out onto the road where the trucks had rumbled by. Carla's siblings were burned, but their cousin was hurt even worse, with broken bones. She'd been accidentally thrown from the truck she was riding in. As soon as the burn victims had appeared, Carla snapped into big sister mode. She passed out Gatorade and Pedialyte she'd stashed in her cooler. She even pulled out a bottle of hydrocodone that she'd been prescribed for a shoulder injury. We were like giving out that medication like it was freaking candy. We were like, take two, take two, drink water, stay hydrated. And it turns out another camper was a nurse. She set up in a trailer and got to work dressing the wounds while Carla scanned the tree line for the one cousin who was still missing. As the firestorm died down, people began emerging from their vehicles, trading near-death experiences like war stories. Vicky Castro and Rolando Rosales clambered out of the water with their kids. Alex Tedamonte and her husband Raul Reyes got in a huddle with friends to start planning food, water, and shelter, thinking about survival. They assumed any rescue missions would be coming from the road, which could take days to clear. We're not going to be up here for the next 24 hours. We're not going to be up here for the next 72 hours. I was thinking minimum five, seven, maybe even 10 days. But while they were planning, they were surprised by another vehicle driving out of the smoldering forest, this time an ATV. It was black, like a black hole from where they were coming. They were coming from this road. Like, where the hell did they come from? People ran over, bringing food and water. They're trying to catch their breath, and they're like, there's some guys trapped at the creek. They'd seen a group of men huddled in a quad in the water, and they looked injured. It was more news Carla had been waiting for. He was like, yes, we found five guys. He goes, like, between the ages of 25 and 30. And I was like, oh, my God. I screamed at him. I, I, I must have scared him. One of them matched the description of her cousin. The guys in the ATV hadn't had room for them, so they'd bombed it to the lake to get back up. They rounded up a handful of volunteers, most of them strangers, and a few more ATVs. These people did not hesitate, not once, to say, no, it's too dangerous to go. They were just like, no, let's go. The search party returned to screams of joy and tears. Carla's cousin had lost his shoes, and his feet were so badly burned he had to be carried. But he and the others with him were alive. So I ran back to my aunt's truck, and I started banging on the window. And I was like, yeah, I'm like, they found him. And she just threw herself out of the car. And her cousin had a friend with him, a puppy they'd found cowering in the quad, a husky, Vicky and Rolando's dog, Loki, who'd been thrown from a truck hours earlier. The guys that they found in the razor, um, they didn't want to let him go. Because our dog had basically sat with them for the most part of the fire. By 7 p.m., Chief Joe and three crew members were in the air. They were in a Chinook, basically a flying tank with two massive rotors. And as they approached the fire, they linked up with a second helicopter, a Black Hawk out of Fresno. The sun was setting, and the conditions were dismal. The visibility immediately dropped from clear when you're on one side of the fire to almost zero when you're on the inside of the fire. For a moment, I was like, oh, man, this is really bad. But then they discovered the glowing remains of trees below them. I could see all these little pinpricks of, 
of where the terrain would be based on that burning vegetation. And it was almost a relief. We're like, well, wait, we can actually see. The constellation of embers lit their way straight to the lake. Once there, it was the sound of the rotors that reached the campers first. Everybody was screaming. Everybody basically started cheering. And they started saying, turn on all the lights so they know that we're down here. Car headlights, flashlights, cell phones. I mean, anything. And just everyone was just screaming, yelling, honking. The Chinook landed first on the boat launch. They'd been told they were picking up around 30 people, maybe 30 families. Obviously, both were an undercount. The crews stuffed people in, burned victims first, then women and children. The Chinook left with 65 people, the Black Hawk with 15, and within an hour or two, they were all being triaged at Fresno Yosemite Airport. Around 10 p.m., the choppers landed a second time. The smoke was getting worse, so they made a decision. Load up. The crew piled in as many people as they could, in case they couldn't make it back again. It was only once Chief Joe started up the rotors and felt the sluggishness of the chopper that he realized just how full they were. It's designed for 33 people in seatbelts. And we took 102. It was standing room only, and the back ramp couldn't close. Crew members had stretched cargo straps across the open door to hold everyone inside. That was definitely a wide-eyed, white-knuckled, very... At that point, like, I had run out of outs. At that point, we realized if something happens, if an engine quits, if, if something with the airframe fails, we don't have an out. Like, we are going wherever gravity takes us. Were you scared for your life or for the lives of the people on that on that chopper? For, for that 20-minute time span, yes. Yeah. It, 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 there was no, there was nothing for sure uh, in, in that 20 minutes. The helicopter pilots and their crew members had accepted this mission without knowing how many people needed rescuing or even where they were going. And even though they'd flown countless wildfires, many had never done it at night. Chief Joe kissed his kids goodbye, knowing he was doing something he'd never attempted for people he'd never met. It's a mission that will forever stand out for him even compared to active duty in Kuwait, in Iraq, in Afghanistan. And I've done, you know, night air assaults into bad guy country and doing all this, all this other stuff. I've been shot at, I've been all, but this was by far the most dangerous, most, yeah, risky thing that I've ever gotten myself into. Around 4 a.m., 12 hours after those first text messages, the National Guardsmen finally made it to their hotel rooms, exhausted and reeking of smoke. The choppers had each taken three flights, transporting 242 people and 16 dogs to safety. And they weren't done. Over the next few days and nights, they'd airlift another 150 people trapped by the fire out of the High Sierra. And so it's fitting that a few weeks later, their heroism was recognized by the highest authority possible, the White House. Chief Joe, the Black Hawk pilot, and their five crew members were awarded a prestigious military honor, the Distinguished Flying Cross. Typically, a general would present them, but this time, President Trump flew out to California to pin them on the men personally. You know, that's basically the highest award that you can get for aviation service. 
uh, just extremely humbled. Couldn't really ask for more. And that, that, that was pretty amazing. Pretty awesome. There were so many conditions that aligned in favor of rescue that day at Mammoth Pool. The abundance of vehicles, the low water levels, the emergency cell service that allowed 911 calls to set the rescue in motion. And there were so many heroes, not just the National Guardsmen. Raul credits the other members of his off-roading club for thinking fast, like the friend who jet-skied them to the trucks after their hike. Alex's hero was Raul who helped her stay calm by telling her to call 911. And Vicky and Rolando, their heroes, were the people who brought their kids to the lake and rescued their dog. And, of course, Alex and Raul, who stuffed them into their truck. When I was running, the smoke got so thick, like, I couldn't breathe anymore. I, I can't even imagine what could have happened if they weren't there to take us. Carla has so much gratitude for the pilots, for the men who rushed back into the forest for her family members, and for the nurse who took care of their injuries. When we got to the hospital, they said, who did this? Because it's so good. Like if they hadn't cleaned the wounds the way they did, they said it would have been a lot worse. They said that everybody would have had infections. At times, Carla is shocked they made it out alive, every one of them. It's a feeling many of these campers share. And they're right. It's all so incredible, it's almost hard to believe. When I tell the story to people, I just tell them, you know what, it was like a movie, but in real life. (laughs) In the next episode, an epilogue, how all these families are doing a year later including a surprise lawsuit. That's next week on Escape from Mammoth Pool. This episode was reported and produced by me, Carrie Klein, and edited by Alice Daniel. Music by Kevin McLeod, web support from Alex Burke, and engineering help from Don Weaver. This has been a production of KVPR, NPR for Central California. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.